I think for academics this is a pretty uh, challenging question because academia is more or less a bottom-up driven activity uh, dependent on the interests and ideas of people working in various fields. So it makes it a bit difficult to uh, forecast how the field of European studies will develop over the next few years, but we will try nevertheless. Uh, each discipline in European studies has its special way of looking at the European Union. Lawyers examine the formal rules, political scientists observe and develop hypotheses. Historians concentrate on narratives, key events and actor-centered analysis, uh, but to my mind the particular attractiveness of European integration research and of course of associations like the three represented here on the panel is the continuous permanent exchange of concepts, methods and results across these disciplines. Before we open the panel, allow me to make a, a personal remark. As an official of the European Parliament, I was very privileged to have the opportunity to attend uh, several EUSA conferences and also a few OASIS conferences. Sometimes it was quite stressful for me to write an acceptable paper, but uh, in the end it gave great satisfaction and obliged me to get a feel of the current thinking in EU studies uh, on particular issues of European integration. Um, as I spent a good part of my career in constitutional affairs, um, exchanges with constitutionalists and other scholars always um, <coughs> made me come back to the Parliament with a lot of fresh ideas and sometimes even some optimism. Um, I still remember my first EUSA conference in early June 2001. There were still some snowflakes falling from the sky, but I was very much impressed by the... Uh, that took place in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I was impressed by the Monona Terrace Convention Center, which was first designed by Frank Lloyd Wright between 1938 and 1958. He did various revisions of the plan. Afterwards, it still took several local referendums before the building uh, could be constructed, and it was only opened almost 40 years later in 1997. At the time, I found, and I still find this a nice metaphor for the importance of patience and serendipity. And I guess we can use some of this also for European integration in the near future. When we briefly spoke about this panel, we decided to give it an informal character to enable a free exchange of ideas on what to expect uh, for the evolution of European studies. I think we all agree that there is a certain correlation between the politics and the scholarship of European integration. Some scholars have recently argued that too little attention has been given to sources and explanations of disintegration. However, at least over the past few years, I think we have seen a considerable scholarly, scholarly efforts and output to contribute to our understanding of Euroscepticism, of politicization of European integration and of the waning of the permissive consensus. And if I look at some of the ongoing PhD projects here at the EUI, I feel that research along these lines will continue to flourish. But I do not want to anticipate what our panelists would like to say. I'm delighted to start with Professor Helen Drake. Just a few brief words. Helen um, has a PhD in European Studies from Aston University and is Professor of French and European Studies and Director of the Academy of Diplomacy and International Governance at Loughborough University. London. London. Helen has chaired the University Association for Contemporary European Studies uh, since 2012. 
And in 2015, she had the brilliant idea to launch a research project involving the transfer of the OASIS archives uh, to the historical archives of the European Union, which is, of course, the reason, one of the reasons for this conference. The project has, in the meantime, also received funding by the European Commission, which is being used to support PhD students and early career scholars. Helen, the floor is yours. Thank you. I see you're, you're reading from my profile, but the word brilliant isn't in my web profile. I think <laughs> you've added that. Um, so thank you, everybody. And I'm, I'm going to start my presentation with a quote, a genuine, real-life quote that um, I encountered in 2013. The quote is, I think it would be really weird to study European studies in the UK, end of quote. And this was a Dutch businessman, a hotel owner in Devon. And, uh, and it was on his son's decision, his son's decision to go and study European studies in Maastricht. So here was his dad who had made his life, his business in the UK, uh, encouraging his son Bob to go to, to, to Maastricht to study European studies. So that, that was one kind of thing that provoked me <clears throat> into looking at, at, at UAC's uh, a bit more sort of um, intellectually, as it were. Um, and um, for the rest of the presentation, I'm really basing myself on... Uh, on, a, on a paper, on a chapter that I've co-written with em Emily Linneman, uh, the executive director of UACs, who unfortunately was poorly and couldn't be here. And um, we've called our paper, which is due to be published in a big French, mainly French language, genealogy of European studies in, the, in, 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 in Europe. Um, we've called our paper, <clears throat> what's in a subject association question mark, um, European studies in the UK 20... 1967 to 2017. Now we nicked that title, What's in a Subject Association, from Alan Millward's 1975 journal article in JCMS called What's in a Name? Question mark, the European Studies Movement. And I think, Helena, you said that, that that is now on open access, thanks to Wiley, uh, to coincide with this, this event here. So, um, I'm going to base my presentation, if you like, on, on, on that paper. It's probably going to be a bit of a ramble, I'm sorry, but I will try to bring out the salient points. So in the paper, in the chapter, uh, we first of all provide an overview <coughs> of the early years, and, and Quincy, yesterday, you, you know, you, you've gone deeper into the archives than we had the time to, and so you very much uh, developed that part, and so I won't, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to cover that here. Secondly, we looked at the challenge posed by European studies to the established order of disciplines disciplines in UK universities around the sort of 60s, 70s. So that's sort of where I'm going to go to next, the question of European studies as a discipline. Um, and third, actually do what I was asked to do, which was to look at the future <clears throat> of European studies. So in the, in the chapter as well, we look ahead to a new era. Um, and as you said here, Wilhelm, we're here because it's the 50th anniversary of UAC, so, uh, which we didn't know at the time would coincide with the beginning of the withdrawal, withdrawal process um, of the UK from the EU. And so um, let me just say a few things about the second part of the chapter then, which is making and unmaking a, an academic discipline. And I'm going to indulge myself, maybe ourselves, by referring to Millwood's article, because, you know, for better or worse, you could, these, this is before peer review. I don't know about you, but if you go and read early issues of JCMS, they are quite nice to read. Uh, they're a big picture, they tell stories and so on. So this is from 1975. And so I'm going to talk about, as I say, European studies as a discipline, but uh, with reference to Millwood. So let me, let me give you a flavour of his article, if I may. Um, in, in, towards the beginning of Millwood's article, he, he says, quote, 
In schools, European studies is the label put on soft courses for children who are unable to pass French. It seems to cover anything that a teacher noticed on his last car trip to France. Can there be any connection between this and whatever it is that the University Association for Contemporary European Studies, UACs, encourages? Great start. Um, and in his article, he develops a number of a number of sort of arguments around how European studies was a challenge, posed a challenge to the established order of disciplines and discipline, I think he also was implying, in UK's universities. Um, so just to sort of, just to cherry pick really uh, things that I think are relevant to us here, one of the points he makes is that the establishment of European studies, he was at UMIS, which doesn't really exist anymore uh, since the merger of Manchester's universities. He makes the point that European studies in the UK's universities was very much the accidents of, quote, sorry, the accidents of persons and places he says it was neither, he says European studies took root. He said it was neither con a conscious decision nor planning on the part of the universities or, or polys. And I think that's relevant to the OACs, we developed that because the, that serendipitous sort of accident of persons and places, a number of those persons were leading members of UACs, if not founders of UACs. He says the subject has crept around corners infiltrated committees, you can see where this is coming from, suborned individuals and won by pure stealth. Uh, the point being then that his, uh, I think the point he's making is that um, it was almost a subversive, a radical act to try to introduce what we're calling European studies into the university at, at this sort of time. Indeed, uh, he talks about disciplines as a permanent concept. Uh, with chairs and, and offices. He said that might work for Marks and Spencer, I mentioned this yesterday, you know, where you have everything in its place. He said, but if you have that as an academic organisation, it tends to give, it, turns, it tends to turn disciplines into permanent concepts. So he's kind of ranting, frankly, in the article, and it's really interesting to read it. Um, and, and he says interdisciplinarity, which European studies tried to be, I think, uh, usually involved building a new institution. Um, and I think if you, if you substitute department for institution, that's probably true. Um, so he, I think he also makes the point that European studies was, he calls it the European studies movement, and he says it was driven by a strong political wind meaning Britain's accession, failed accession to the EU, then Britain's accession to the EU, and then Britain's membership of the EU. And uh, just to sort of finish out on him, he, so his point was that European studies in the UK was the product of a political wind. Um, he talks about the sordid compromises of Brussels and so on. It's all very topical, really. Um, but he says it was also pushed by educational reformers and that it was about ethos, about ethos in the universities. And I think that's why I found it quite interesting. Still in this, on this part of disciplines, I think we can also talk about the unmake... I haven't really said what European studies is, but it's in the paper, and I can respond to that a bit more. Um, but we, in the UK, I think we've seen the unmaking of the discipline. We've seen the undoing of departments. Not whole, dis not whole institutions. Well, no. Um, and in the paper, sorry, in the, in the article which, sorry, this is a total digression, it's made me realise that it would be difficult to have this, any peer review article, any peer review of this article quite diff difficult because it's identified um, through my positionality as chair of UAC. So if you've got any ideas on how to get something like this peer reviewed, I'd be really welcome. That would be really welcome because there is sort of um, identifiers in here. In the paper, I look at the Loughborough case, actually, the Loughborough University, the Midlands campus, 
and, and how I look at the rise and the fall of European studies there, not just to have a dig or anything, but because um, I think it's really typical of, it's really emblematic, if you like, of, of the UK sector. Um, and we also cover the disappearance <coughs> of European studies from the REF, the Research Excellence Framework. It was there in 2008 and in 2014 and since it's been subsumed into area studies. And um, uh, yeah, just sort of on this discipline, I think Millwood does make some serious points about European studies interdisciplinary or not needed an intellectual rationale. It wasn't just sufficient to study what Kilo in 2005 called um, boutique studies of European Union. Um, uh, uh, Millwood argues that studying the EU is a necessary but not sufficient condition for the future of European studies. And this is, so this is where now I'm going to move to bringing UACs back in and looking forward a little bit. So um, I think, so yeah, so in terms of, in terms of UACs, uh, and there's stuff in the, uh, in the chapter that, dis and you could get it on the website, you know, it, um, really it would be disingenuous to claim anything other than most of the research that the UACs members do is on the European Union. Okay. Last year's achieve, uh, Lifetime Achievement winner was Simon Bulmer from now at uh, Sheffield. Yes, is that right? And he, I mean, he is, I think, an, he, he is actually probably one of the few people who, who he's from the contemporary European studies mould. Um, but in UACs, we are primarily, I think, a home for scholars of European, the European Union in all its guises. Um, so I'll just say that sort of as a rider. And I think that where UACs comes back into this sort of, I said, a rambling account is to, to mediate and mitigate change. Wynne Grant, when he did his uh, uh, history of the PSA, which is not in any way a competitive association with UACs, um, he talked about the the he, he talked about a discipline is a discipline if it has a subject association, and that subject association has a journal, um, it has an annual conference, and it has members and so on. And and he taught, he, he asked the question: Do associations exist to reflect the discipline? or to shape it. So, sort of coming back to UACs, do we reflect or do we shape? And I think what we worked up in the, in the paper was that perhaps it's neither, but it's a way of mitigating change. And we look a little bit in the article about, uh, go to talk, we refer to Louise Morley, who's written, uh, again, a bit in the style of Millwood, very emphatically about how in today's universities, especially in the UK, um, she, talks about, she talks about disciplines and our relation to disciplines are really by the by. What matters is change. And as academics, she argues, what we're rated on, a performance, uh, a, 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 a performance indicator, is how well we adapt to change or not. Um, how we incorporate it in our daily uh, academic life or not. Are we rebellious? Are we cantankerous? This is my words. Or do we uh, go sort of with the, with the flow? Um, and... And, and, and I think that as a subject association, perhaps, rather than reflecting or shaping, we try to situate ourselves in a way that we can, as I say, mitigate and, and mediate this, um, this change, and in that way bring an ethos to European studies, which perhaps is not so dissimilar to back to the, the, the 70s. So um, perhaps UACs as a, as a subject association, then, is still um, offering... Yeah, so a home for, whether it's a discipline or not, for an ethos of, 
of, uh, of higher education, where we do try to challenge the new and where we facilitate transnational and multidisciplinary encounters. So it's not so much about the discipline, but about the, acad the academy and the, the being an academic community. Um, so this is a bit disjointed, but I'm going to come back to this at the beginning. You know, is it weird to study European studies in the United Kingdom? Um, and, and whether or not it is, what's the role of UACs as a subject association in that? And in recent years, we've tried to be strategic about this. Um, and I just would point to three ways in which we're trying to make it not weird or not balmy to study the European to study European studies slash EU studies in the UK. And the first, so we sort of took a strategic breath, I think, before the referendums it happened, and now we're continuing that. I think the first thing is, through the 50th anniversary, um, we are trying to consolidate scholarship on Europe through our membership that's done by our membership and raise awareness. I keep having images of Titanic and deck chairs, uh, as in the chair that will go down with the Titanic if if uh, if if, if uh, Brexit and so on does kind of spell the end of European studies. Nevertheless, the first thing I think through the 50th anniversary that UASIS has agreed to do is to raise awareness of the the, the discipline or the community of people studying Europe. Um, the second thing is I think we've tried to beef up a little bit what was there in 1967, which was the educational mission. Um, if you look at the papers yesterday, um, there was a lot on the, the on UAC's educational mission, including in schools, which I guess is why Millwood talked about that. And so we have, uh, on a, partly through joint funding with the ESRC that I've had, we have sort of ventured into a couple of schools in Loughborough and uh, simulated uh, bre uh, Brexit negotiations on, on freedom of movement and so on. So perhaps that's a way to keep European studies alive through a, a broader educational mission. I'm not terribly optimistic, I just feel like these are drops in the ocean, but uh, we carry on. And I think a third thing, perhaps more substantial at UAC, is to try to make it, um, you know, to legitimise, if you like, the continued study of, of Europe, is we have expanded, as you, as you can see, our support to early career researchers. So we very deliberately went out and got some extra funding uh, from the Commission, from the John James Madison Charitable Trust, to... Uh, to increase our prizes, our scholarships and so on and so forth uh, to early career researchers. In brackets, it's actually getting harder and harder to get people to apply for this free stuff. Um, you know, we found it harder and harder to find a chair to replace me, to find officers, to find, uh, you know, the, 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 the era of citizenship and sort of public citizenship as scholars. Uh, I don't know whether it's trickled down to <coughs> your better place to say, say than I am to... We've, we've, we've had a sort of a decline in the take-up, I think it would be fair to say, of some of these, what we see as good is. Nevertheless, uh, those who do take it up hopefully find it very uh, beneficial career-wise. So to finish then, perhaps UACs is a misnomer, perhaps CES, Contemporary European Studies, is a bit of a misnomer, perhaps, because, and as I said, I haven't really talked about what that involved, but it was a very sort of language-based humanities and social science multidisciplinary uh, degree, as it were. Perhaps the name is a misnomer, but it's a brand name and an asset, and we have no more appetite to change the name. Well, but I'm no longer chair in a few months, so who knows? But um, for now, there's been no appetite to change the name, much as JCMS flirted with the idea of changing its name, and that, that as far as I'm aware, that's not going to happen. These are brand names and assets. Um, 
and there's no appetite to change that. So I suppose I, I, we finish in the paper by saying European studies is dead in the, is dead in the UK, but long live European studies and long live your ACs. Thank you. Thank you very much, Helen. Um, it's uh, always amazing to see uh, on what subjects Ellen Milward wrote in our field. And, uh, you sometimes wonder whether there's any subject he wrote not about. <laughs> um, I found particularly interesting your um, <coughs> observation concerning the, uh, whether an association reflects or shapes uh, its field, and it makes me think about uh, terminology that is currently used in research policy. Uh, people dealing with research policy um, often say that um, there is a distinction between demand pull and science push, and I think most scholars and scientists prefer the science push uh, strategy rather than the demand pull. Strategy. So I, I think associations probably um, reflect their discipline, uh, but should also try to, to give it uh, some new impetus, I would say. Uh, we continue with um, Mary Murphy from the University College Cork. Just a few uh, informations. Dr. Murphy is a lecturer in politics with the Department of Government at University College Cork. She has been president of the Irish Association for Contemporary European Studies since 2014. IASIS is only a few years younger than UASIS and can help also look back to a long history of organizing and promoting research on European integration. In 2015, Mary was awarded a Chamonet Chair in European Integration by the European Commission. Mary, the you. floor is yours. Thanks very much indeed, um, and I, I echo the thanks of uh, earlier speakers in terms of the invitation to be here. It's a real pleasure to be here, and particularly at an event like this, which is, I guess, slightly less informal than some of the other research conferences we would have the opportunity to attend. Um, and I think that's hugely beneficial, actually, being able to step aside from um, our everyday research and teaching and think and reflect about European studies and about um, about the work that we do, and I, I've actually gotten an awful lot of food for thought since yesterday in terms of um, being in the archives in particular. Um, I am the, the president of the Irish Association for Contemporary European Studies, which, as you say, has has in fact a long history, but perhaps an interrupted history. Um, its existence has sort of come and gone down through the years, and it has morphed into other institutions or into other organisations at times. Um, but um, in recent years, we've, we've tried to, uh, to invigorate it um, and, and to give it more of a presence within the academic community in Ireland. Um, and I follow in the, um, in the footsteps of, uh, of earlier scholars, including um, Bridget, um, but also uh, former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, who would have been one of the earlier presidents of IACs back in the, uh, the 1970s. But we haven't actually documented that, to my knowledge, in any systematic way and recorded the history of, of the organisation. Um, and I think that's something that we should most definitely put on the agenda uh, because it's important to reflect <coughs> on what we've done um, and what's being achieved and it might give us direction in terms of uh, meeting the challenges of the future. Um, in terms of my contribution, I thought that I would uh, focus focus my contribution in three ways, so that I would reflect on the past, consider the, consider the present, and then maybe talk a little bit about the, uh, the future. So um, one of the first points I would make in relation to European studies is that, um, to my knowledge, and I am open to correction here, 
Um, Ireland may have been among the first European member states to actually offer programmes of study in European studies. Um, it was a, a programme at GCD, uh, University College Dublin, uh, in 1966 to 67, a postgraduate programme in European integration and international trade. Um, and that was followed a few years later in the early 1970s with the creation of the European Studies undergraduate programme at the University of Limerick, um, which I believe is one of the oldest under undergraduate European Studies programmes um, in Europe. Um, I'm a graduate of that programme, as is, as is Bridget, a graduate of that programme as well. Um, uh, so it's obviously a great programme. <laughs> <laughs> um, but having said that, European studies um, in Ireland has waxed and waned down through the years. Uh, the UL European Studies programme is probably the flagship undergraduate programme. When I was a student of that programme in the very early 90s, uh, the intake was 200 students in a year who would take European studies and then focus their studies around law or political science or in some cases languages. And the intake on that programme now is down to about 30 or 40 students on an annual basis. But other institutions in Ireland um, do also offer European Studies programmes, but they tend, to, they tend to be different in nature. The UL programme had a, a, a strong multidisciplinary uh, approach. Programmes, the European Studies programme at Trinity College Dublin is really a language-based programme. There's a new European Studies programme in one of our institutes of technology, which is very strong business focus to it. Um, so I guess the market for European Studies is actually, is actually quite broad and quite diverse. Um, having said that, uh, the study of, of Europe and the study of the European Union, perhaps more specifically, I, I would suggest has become an embedded feature of many diverse degree programmes across the Irish third level sector, whether it's political science or law or anthropology or sociology. So, so Europe has a very strong presence um, within, within Irish third level education. Um, and European studies have been innovative too, um, not just in Ireland, but right across European member states, particularly in terms of work on teaching and learning, which I think has been quite impressive. You know, you mentioned um, the um, simulation work. Um, that's, that's very much associated, I think, with the European studies tradition, and I think it's to be welcomed. And in Ireland, there's a number of factors I would point to in terms of European studies and how it has developed and, and how it's been supported. And the first point I was ma would make is that national government support has been important, um, particularly for a country like Ireland, where our universities are publicly funded. Support for European studies from, from the centre and, and from the education sector more broadly has been very important in terms of facilitating the study of, of Europe and the European Union. And I think various ministers down throughout the years, government ministers, um, have been supportive of the discipline and that's been especially important in terms of maintaining its presence. But I also think that institutional support and maybe more particularly institutional leadership is critical in terms of European studies. So even the question of what is European studies, that can become a very challenging question within an institution and I have very direct experience of that. The question of where European studies is located within an institution, you know, what discipline is it, is it rooted in, and, and what sort of status does the programme have? These can become very conflictual conversations, and um, they're not always to the benefit of the discipline itself. I think, uh, thirdly, associational support has been hugely important, um, and the networks uh, that, that come from, that asso from, from associational support has been um, particularly significant. 
Um, in Ireland, IACs, as, as I said, has had a, a checkered history, perhaps, but nevertheless, it does bring scholars together um, reasonably frequently, and it allows some sort of synergies and dynamism to emerge from that. I think from an Irish perspective as well, UACs has been hugely important. Um, sometimes it's at UACs conferences as where I see my Irish colleagues, um, who, I, who I may not see from one end of the year to the other. I also think, again, maybe particularly from an Irish perspective, the Erasmus Plus Shamanay programme has been very, very important, particularly in recent years. Um, it has allowed for uh, a greater visibility for European studies. And of course, it comes with a pile of money, which means that you can host European-themed events. Um, and, uh, and, and that's been important for sustaining the um, <coughs> sustaining visibility of the discipline as well. In terms of the present, in terms of uh, Ireland and the EU in particular, perhaps, I think maybe some context is, is important here in, in understanding European studies from an Irish perspective. Um, the Irish relationship with the European Union has clearly has, has had its ups and downs over the years, particularly during the, the financial crisis. And of course, we do have a history of referendums, EU referendums in Ireland, and on twice occasions, on two occasions, we have, have rejected referendums. But for all of that, Ireland's relationship with the European Union has been largely positive. Um, and you can judge that in terms of the very high levels of public support um, and public attitudes towards the European Union, which tend to be at the, uh, uh, towards, the top of, uh, towards the top of the list. The benefits of EU membership have also been apparent for Ireland. So those benefits, maybe predominantly economic, have been visible, but there's been political benefits too and, and social benefits. And I was struck earlier by the conversation about gender equality. You know, that piece of legislation was, was, was exceptionally important in Ireland in the 1970s. Um, and I think EU membership has been important for Ireland in terms of a small state undergoing a process of political maturation. Um, it's given us a certain confidence and, 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 and belief in our own future and destiny and our ability to, uh, to shape that. Um, and there's a strong consensus, not a wholesale consensus, but a strong consensus across Ireland in terms of supporting European membership. And that, that cuts across uh, most of the major political parties in Ireland. It would include much of civil society and, and interest groups, even, even churches. Um, and there are also low levels of Euroscepticism in Ireland, if, certainly if we compare it to our, our nearest neighbours. There's no strong left-wing party um, in Ireland. There's no radical right movement in Ireland. Um, there, there really isn't a strong Eurosceptic press either in Ireland, which I think is important. And there is no appetite, even following Brexit, for Ireland to leave the European Union. So that's the context within which Europe, the European Union more broadly is understood um, in Ireland. But of course Brexit is impacting very profoundly on our relationship with the European Union and on our relationship with the UK as well. So in that context, I do think there is an opportunity for European studies and for us as scholars, um, in particular to encourage a greater engagement between the academic community and the wider world, um, civil, civil servants maybe in particular, but other sectors as well. Um, and we haven't maybe been particularly adept at doing that down through the years, but the moment the opportunity for doing so has perhaps presented itself um, right now. There's also, I think, a need to translate that into support for research, um, particularly in Ireland, where we don't have the sorts of um, 
I mean, you probably don't think it's generous, but, but the ESRC, for example, the UK and a change in Europe, there are those, those facilities for, um, for promoting uh, the study of Europe particularly. We don't have those, those dedicated research um, opportunities in Ireland. I think there's also a need to prepare students as well and to prepare graduates, um, not just for the working world, but for, well, for the working world, but also for working um, outside of Ireland, for working in the European Union institutions, and um, maybe in particular. In, in Ireland, there's, there's challenges for European studies in this context. So at the same time as there is perhaps a need to um, buttress the European studies community and the European studies discipline, there are also huge pressures on the European studies discipline. Because as the UK departs the European Union, there is a need for Ireland perhaps to look to other opportunities, particularly in terms of the diversification of markets. Um, and in that context, there is, um, there, is some, there is a temptation to look elsewhere. So, for example, Asian studies now has a greater cachet than it might necessarily have had previously, and of course that puts pressure on the extent to which resources can be, uh, can be shared. I think there's looming challenges as well um, for Ireland that um, Brexit, to a certain extent maybe as academics, we've been a little bit convulsed by the Brexit challenge in Ireland because it presents us in particular with such profound challenges. But we will be remaining a, mem a member of the European Union, so we, we do also need to, to keep a close eye on the European Union and on the future of the EU debate in particular. Also, the Apple tax ruling, which may have very profound implications for Ireland. In that context, we need to think in terms of our own study and research and maybe how IACs can, can support that, about learn lessons from the UK, you know, about how to consult how to shape conversations around things like the future of Europe, which is going to ask very profound questions of Ireland. We're going to be asked to think about the status of neutrality, our, our neutral status within the wider world. We're going to be asked to think about the future of corporation tax. And these are very, very testy issues for, for the Irish electorate. If there is to be a treaty, a treaty in the near future, that will likely go to a referendum. So all of these things we need to think about um, in terms of not just how we shape that conversation, but how we prepare the wider public um, to, to engage in that conversation as well. And, and, and this actually, it, it, it struck me, not just the wider public, but, 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 but government itself. I was asked to participate in a study of national positions on EU reform proposals um, by the Institute for European Politics in Berlin. They're doing a very interesting project where they're taking a snapshot of what each member state each member state's position is on a whole variety of subjects, everything from corporation tax to the future of defence and common foreign security policy, and a member state's position on creating a European um, minimum wage, for example. So I was asked to do this, I was given a very detailed questionnaire and uh, asked to detail what the Irish position would be on all of these questions, but, but to provide proof, of course, and evidence. And it was intriguing because Ireland doesn't really have a position on a whole lot of these things. Um, and there's no sort of developed debate, you know, thinking about, about the future and, and what, what the Irish position might be on these. And there isn't an Irish government position, but, but maybe myself and, and other colleagues aren't perhaps being preemptive enough in terms of thinking about what those future challenges might be for a small state like Ireland. So I think maybe that begs questions about how we need to be more organised, how we need to be more collaborative, and how we need to be more preemptive in that sense. Um, and just to, to, to finish with a, a few words about the future, um, and European studies uh, 
more broadly, but European studies in Ireland as well. I think clearly the future of European studies is very intimately linked to the future of the European integration process. Um, but in all of that, European studies continues to be important and continues to have a, have a place. And that's now because it has become embedded um, across institutions and within programmes. And it now encompasses so many very different and diverse disciplines. There's a wonderful sort of cross-pollination, I think, that's been taking place, maybe much of it prompted by Brexit, which is creating a very sort of a rich and a very diverse tapestry of thinking about the European Union and its, and its future. And that's probably only likely to increase as time proceeds. Um, so the European Union appears to have emerged from, from the crisis or is beginning to emerge from the crisis and, and is considering new leaps forward in terms of the integration process. So uh, for us, there is a need to be, uh, to be attentive uh, to, 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 to all of that and, and to be making a, a, a contribution. Um, Brexit has also been responsible for... for the development of new conversations, very new conversations about the European Union. So, you know, we're resu resuming some of the older debates about borders and about identity and about constitutional models and about state capacity, and we're developing new conversations as well about not the notion of European integration, but the notion of European disintegration as well. Um, and I do think as well there will be a, a sort of an, an interesting stream of work that will emerge from this, this nexus between being inside and outside the European Union, or notions of insider-outsider, or outsider-insider status. And so there'll be, uh, there'll be a lot of research um, that would be uh, important around that. And I think in all of that, we need more research students. And I say that's this from, from an Irish perspective in particular. We need more research students, we need more PhD students, and we need resources for, that, for those students as well. Um, one of the interesting things about Brexit from my perspective as an Irish scholar is, and you touched on it in the first session, is the interplay we've now observed between academia and the policy-making community, which maybe wasn't as developed as it was previously. Um, we're now talking to, to lawyers, we're talking to civil servants, we're talking to journalists, we're talking to politicians, much more frequently than we ever were before. And I participated in an event that IACES was involved in in Dublin um, on Tuesday, a closed Chatham House roundtable discussion which brought together senior civil servants from across the Irish civil service and a number of academics to talk about Brexit. And it was a hugely interesting um, and a hugely revealing conversation. Um, but it was the first time we'd ever done that. It's the first time we'd ever sat down in that format um, with our colleagues in the civil service to talk about, to talk about Europe. Um, one of the other things I think that we've seen emerging in terms of, uh, and we'll probably see more of, is the influence of scholars from Central and Eastern Europe. I think that's something that's going to be part and parcel, and that's, and that's obviously very, very welcome. Um, let me finish by saying that um, I, I, congratulations to UACs on, on their 50th anniversary. Um, I, I don't think we'll be in as strong as a, a position as, I, as UACs is when, when we reach our 50th. Um, but we do anticipate growing and, and, and consolidating, and, and I guess in terms of ambition, we would like to become an, an embedded part of, of the broader international research community, which is interested in European studies, but also becoming an embedded, an embedded feature of, uh, of the European Union dialogue um, in Ireland, and uh, in terms of uh, how, how we might contribute to that. And, and once again, to reiterate, I think the moment of opportunity has arrived. Many thanks, Mary, for this uh, very detailed uh, um, story of the Irish research landscape, and I'm very reassured to hear 
what you said about the pro-European attitude of the um, <laughs> Irish um, civil service and general population. Um, we will continue the panel with um, Professor Abraham Newman from Church Georgetown University in the United States. Uh, again, a few words on his background. Abe received his PhD in political science from the University of California in Berkeley. He is an associate professor at the Walsh School of Foreign Service and the Government Department at Georgetown. And he also serves as the director of the Mortara Center for International Studies. Um, I would like to thank Abe particularly for making the trip to come here. I'm, I'm sure you will enjoy your short stay in Tuscany. Um, Abe became chair of the EUSA only earlier this year, but he has additional experience as a vice chair, so he, I'm sure he can tell us also interesting um, aspects of the history of EUSA. Um, EUSA is the youngest of the three bodies represented here, founded in 1988. But uh, as I mentioned already in my introductory statement, uh, the conferences and other activities are very special in that about every two years, hundreds of European scholars make the trip over the ocean to uh, meet their American colleagues and um, the, in general the great community of US scholars working in EU studies. It's always amazing to see the number of US scholars interested in the European Union and generally uh, very positive about European integration. Um, Abe's research focuses on economic interdependence and globalization and how they have transformed international politics. <coughs> he has written on the digital revolution and on personal data regulation, among other subjects. Abe, the floor is yours. Thank you, Wilhelm, and thank you also to UACs and Helen for the invitation. It's really a in addition to being an intellectually stimulating time, it's just beautiful. So, you know, coming from a, a sweaty Washington, D.C. fall, I was uh, delighted to be here. Um, I have some slides just because I think images are often very evocative, so I will, you know, hopefully entertain you a little bit with those as well. Um, I wanted to start just kind of with a, an intellectual trip of my own, you know, my own experience. I'm currently, um, in addition to the things that uh, Wilhelm mentioned, I'm in a center for German and European studies at Georgetown, where we have one of these very interdisciplinary uh, programs. We train master's students in European uh, politics, history, culture, society. And uh, you know, we've witnessed, or I've been there since 2006, so I've kind of witnessed the ebbs and flows of interest in this area from kind of also as a, as a teacher, in addition to being part of this European studies community. And uh, I started, when I started at Berkeley, um, you know, in, in many ways I felt like it was the heyday of European studies in the United States. So it was a period where Ernie Haas, for example, was uh, still on faculty there. Um, the, you know, Andy Moravchik's intervention into uh, international relations, but also in European studies, had just come out. Um, Kate McNamara, who's one of my colleagues right now, you know, she wrote her book at that very same time. And what I was struck when I was doing my graduate work was very critical questions of nationalism, about uh, political interests, the role of ideas in politics. Those were all being framed around European questions. And so it wasn't European studies just navel-gazing about Europe, but it was taking events that were happening in Europe and reflecting on what does that mean for kind of really critical social science and humanities conversations about identity, interests, uh, and nationalism. 
And what I, uh, what I felt as I started actually teaching was that European Union studies had drifted from those core kind of humanities and social science questions and was becoming, at least in the United States, what I thought was very Americanized in the sense of it was much more focused on kind of political institutions uh, and methods that were much more, I would say, positivist-oriented. And I also use positivist methods. It's not something that I'm, you know, against. But uh, being trained at Berkeley, the thing that Berkeley was always very big about was you know, ask an important question and figure out the method that will help you get to that. And, and my concern was that the methods were kind of driving European uh, Union studies in the United States, not the other way around. And so really the, my main objective as being chair of U, uh, uh, USA right now is to really bring back, and I think the, the previous chair, Alistair Young, was also very focused on this, was to kind of think about how can we promote European studies in the United States that's uh, focusing on these substantive questions um, to political science, historians, legal scholars, and, and not we're not going to be able to justify in the United States just knowing about the European institutions. There's just a very small community that's interested in that. But if we can bring back kind of how the study of Europe reflects on these larger questions of nationalism, of uh, identity, of political interest, that we can get Americans uh, focused on that. And so what I'm going to tell you now is um, how I think, you know, Europeans' uh, crises in some ways are really helping American scholars deal with these uh, issues. So, you know, it's a worst of times, best of times story. Um, but I'm also going to kind of put out a few headwinds that uh, European Union studies faces in the United States as well. So, you know, the, my, my overarching story is that the bad times, whether it's the Euro crisis, uh, the refugee crisis, or Brexit, you know, for European studies in the United States have been fantastic. And so, you know, I feel it's a schadenfreude moment because what these have all done is that they have removed what I would call the banality of Europe. And they've brought Europe really to the fore to say, you know, if you're interested in monetary policy, if you're interested in migration, if you're interested in globalization, these things are, you know, are not over. These aren't questions that have been resolved, but they're really dynamic and are ongoing crises that can help us understand larger uh, social science questions. And we have seen this very um, strongly in the United States, both um, picture, one picture is uh, a recent event that we held at, at Georgetown on the German election. And it was, it, we had to refuse people entry to this uh, panel because there just wasn't enough space in the room for that. And when I started at Georgetown um, in the kind of 2006 to 2008 period, this was just not the case, that there was um, a general shift towards Asia in, I'd say, the way that um, student interest was uh, moving, and that European studies in general had really been on the wane, and it was a struggle to get students to these kinds of um, activities, but also to recruit students that were interested in doing um, a European kind of uh, master's in the United States. And I would say that our current cohorts in the last several years that has not been the problem. It's very easy to articulate to a group of Americans, but also Europeans, why they should be focused on the transatlantic relationship right now as the two largest economies in the world that are also engaged in radical transformations, both Europe and the United States at this moment. 
Um, similarly, at our last conference in Miami, it was the second largest attendance uh, that the that USA has had. And you know, part of it is Miami is beautiful, <laughs> and you know, but there have been other beautiful places where that attendance did not happen. And I think that there really has been. Um, a, a return to the kind of thinking about that, that there can be an intellectual conversation that many people can engage with. That this isn't just a narrow conversation about the European institutions, about parliament co-decision. I, I don't want to offend anybody that's doing that research because it's a very important, but at least in my mind, the, the conversation had narrowed and I feel like it's expanding again. And if you look at the program from that last conference, it really was very big questions were being asked by all the participants. And it was, you know, people had very detailed research, but they were engaging with um, this larger set of questions. So that's my, you know, that's my happy tale, which I'm gonna tell you. Um, but I'm now gonna give you a few kind of things that we should be concerned about as we're moving forward, when at least what I'm thinking about is of European studies in the United States. Um, so the first is what I, I'm putting up this, you know, it's, it's interesting that the journal Regional Studies is in red, because I would say there is a big red flag warning going on in the United States about regional studies. And um, in part, this is about where the larger disciplines in the United States are going and I thought it was actually Helen's comments were very interesting about the um, Millward's idea that there would be this, this new project um, of regional studies or European studies that would be kind of breaking down the barriers of the old disciplines. And at least in my own experience, the problem with that is, is that the, you know, the German, the Nachwuchs, the next generation, they still come from the disciplines. So that the PhDs are still from economics and political science and history and those disciplines. And unfortunately, in the United States, those disciplines have been marginalizing regional studies in their own work. And so whether it's, um, you know, economics has moved into a very theoretical, very quantitative, uh, direction that doesn't is not you know these are like case studies the regional studies for them that are you know in a derogatory word that, that you know the way they talk about it and in political science there has been this move towards um, kind of precision and internal validity is kind of the focus in American political science right now which you know is is just detached from these contextualized you know they they want to have very very <coughs> Uh, generalizable conclusions of causality. And at least how I was trained at Berkeley, it was the opposite. It was trying to come up with these causal stories and mechanisms from very detailed contextual understandings of the empirical material. And so those tensions between the disciplines that produce the scholars that will then live in these interdisciplinary centers is more and more difficult. And I can just say, you know, we at my own center, the BMW Center, we have been trying to hire faculty, and it just gets harder and harder to fill the slots once faculty retire. It used to be that you had these kinds of interdisciplinary educational systems, whether it was at Harvard or at Berkeley, that would feeder into the centers, whether they're at North Carolina or Madison, but those positions, I think, are much uh, harder to fill. And it's not just European studies. You know, we have also, in Georgetown, we have a bunch of these um, regional study centers, and all of them find that the, 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 the next generation, it's harder to find the, the people that are trained with a rich, deep understanding of the local community. And that's really what you need, is people that speak the language, that have spent time in these locations, in order to 
teach your students about what does it mean um, to be European or to have these conflicts. A lot of the scholars that work on these areas, they might never have been to the country that they're you know, studying because they're working on large data sets, they're doing surveys from abroad. Um, it, it's so I think that it is something that we have to reckon with. Not For me, it's not so much about the topics, but it's really about how do you get the faculty that will then live in these homes? Because people are still doing research on Europe and Russia and China and all those places, but um, they're not necessarily the faculty trained in the way that the, you need for these kinds of interdisciplinary homes. Um, then this is, you know, uh, sitting between two stools. I thought this was a very uh, amazing picture. Um, but the, uh, in the United States, in political science in particular, there is a problem in which European Union studies, the sui generis nature of the EU, creates uh, a difficulty for who's responsible for studying this anymore. When I was being trained in the 1990s, it was clearly an international relations topic. And international relations scholars were tasked often with understanding the European Union. And then in the early 2000s, there was a move to make this a more institutional focused you know, project. And there it, it, it started to have a more difficult relationship with should comparativists be responsible for studying the European Union, the committee cycles, the, you know, the relationship between the institutions, or who's, who's responsible for that? Because international relations scholars didn't feel like they were really responsible for that. And so you get fewer and fewer PhD candidates who look at the European Union. And, and when, I, when I was trained, I was like, you, know, you can't understand European policy on X, you know, German policy on, let's say, I, I was very focused on privacy. How can you understand privacy in Germany without understanding the European Union's policy on privacy? But in the United States, we still have so many students that are trained in cross-national European studies that focus on, you know, uh, whatever the policy area is, education, welfare, whatever it is, in isolation. And it's true that the European Union has different competencies across these things, but we know that there's just interdependencies between political systems globally. So, you know, if there's interdependencies between political systems globally through diffusion processes, how can we ignore that at the, you know, in Europe where the interdependence project is the furthest advanced of any region? So um, I think this creates a huge dilemma in the United States of that nobody feels responsible for studying the EU. There are plenty of people that are studying Europe, but it's the question of who's being trained to study the EU as a, a component of these issues. Um, okay, my next uh, kind of point, a headwind, is about the politicization of the transatlantic relationship. And this is something that I, I was completely blindsided by um, in the last election. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a very important red flag that both EU scholars in the United States, but also globally, need to, to, to think about. And what I mean by the politicization is, is that the transatlantic relationship increasingly in the United States is part of a uh, factionalized, um, some people call them tribal, you know, splits between communities about what's good and what's bad. And the Trump administration, and Trump in particular, has 
put the European Union in part of his, you know, hugely bad things in you know, kind of his literature or his, uh, sorry, his language. And that has really important effects for how communities think about this thing. And the, the important shift is that tra the transatlantic relationship has, in the post-war period, was a bipartisan issue. It wasn't ever within the polarized kind of conversation between Democrats and Republicans. You know, there were moments where Europe was more of an ally or less of an ally. We had conflicts. There was the Iraq War. But the idea that the transatlantic relationship uh, was not beneficial to the United States, um, I, I think it has rarely been questioned or polarized by the parties. So there might have been disputes, fights, there's plenty of those going back for a long time, but this general idea that um, the party would target this relationship and say it's bad. And um, this goes back to kind of all the framing conversation we had in the last panel about how then it cues things for voters and that they then be, take these on and it undermines um, the kind of the support for and the interest you know, we're also thinking about the next generation of students that we want to teach and if they're be being polarized by these kinds of conversations it affects them. I'm just going to show you this one. This is a Pew um, research poll that was taken in 2017 and the thing that is so crazy is the yellow is the, the right party, the conservative party, the green is the liberal party and the U.S. is on the bottom and it is the only country where the conservative voters are, are less in favor of NATO, okay? And that is just, for me, it's a complete, it's a polarization effect. They are being told by their party that NATO is, you know, sucking up all these resources. It's just as bad as those migrants. You know, there's no difference between the NATO and the refugees, basically, in that framing. It's a cost, it's a burden. You know, you should feel burdened by this thing. And you're seeing a, a quick, and I, 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 there is also, you know, time, over time data where this wasn't the case 10 years ago. There was no difference between liberal and conservative voters in the United States. But I think that the, the EU studies community, both in the United States but globally, has to think about these kinds of things because it is, it puts NATO, the European Union, the transatlantic relationship, not into kind of a bipartisan, frame but into a partisan frame that then the parties are cueing their voters about what this means and that will have effects about you know students in the future um so i kind of think that there's a call to arms that uh, a bunch of things have to happen um to maintain a, a vibrant eu studies uh, in the united states the first is you know, I don't know, I'm not sure if mainstreaming EU studies is the right word, but what I said at the beginning is really how I would frame it, which is EU studies needs to ask large questions and it needs to motivate them into the disciplines to, to get them to do research on these issues. So whether it's, you know, for me, there's, I'm one of the editors of ISQ, International Studies Quarterly, and I have seen amazing work looking at you know, um, sovereign debt crises that now include the European Union as part of a larger conversation about sovereign debt, how that's managed. The Troika, the Troika, you know, you can have a very narrow study of the Troika, but you can also have a very amazing study that looks at these institutions as how do international organizations interact with each other at a global level. Um, same, similarly with the popula rising populism, you know, this isn't just a Europe effect, there's huge transnational interactions, as 
Simon, I'm going to plug Simon's um, forthcoming edited volume book that he was a contributor. What's that? Oh, it's already out. It's already out on uh, you know, transnational politics in uh, populist movements. These kinds of things, then everybody gets excited about them, not just EU scholars, but at least in the United States, then other, you know, other, I can tell my other IR or comparativist or even Americanist colleagues that this stuff is really important to them. Um, the second point is really supporting graduate training. And um, I have a model that, that there's an organization called the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in the United States, which has, what they try to do is take people in the different disciplines, give them a grant to study health policy. And so it's people that didn't study health policy before, and they're saying, we'll give you a grant, come study health policy. You were a political scientist that worked on taxation, but you should really think about that. And I'm trying to get this going in the United States, where it's saying, okay, you're an IR scholar, you're a comparativist, you didn't look at you know, the EU, but why don't you spend a summer, go to the EU, and we'll fund that. And you know, this is a grant proposal I'm writing right now, but I think we need initiatives that are trying to draw people in um, that will then engage with Europe in a new way. Um, and then the last point is, I'm calling it, you know, taking the transatlantic relationship local. Um, the EU would call it outreach, uh, you know, probably, but what I, what I really think needs to happen is, you know, there are EU study centers in the United States in lots of communities that are being polarized. So whether it's that there's a center in North Carolina, there's a center in Wisconsin, there's a center in Texas, you know, those places, they need help not just getting their scholars to publish in foreign affairs. I mean, that's where every American, you know, person that wants to do outreach, they want to publish in foreign affairs. But what you really got to do is publish in, you know, the Dallas Morning News, because that's the community that needs to be talked about, about the importance of the transatlantic relationship. And so I'm trying to get an, an initiative going where scholars in, you know, the, the blue states are helping scholars in red states publish in their local papers to promote, you know, what are the values of the transatlantic relationship? Why is the European Union perhaps, you know, a beneficial institution and not just something that won't let Trump have a golf course? Because that's what I think a lot of Americans think right now. So European Union stands in the way of Trump having a golf course. Um, and with that, uh, I will I will see my to the rest of my time if there was any. <laughs> oh, this was the last thing. Sorry. Um, please come to Denver. Ooh. It's going to be beautiful. Twenty nineteen. Great. Thank you very much, Abe. It was a very um, interesting and informative talk. Um, I can only confirm what you said about the last conference in Miami. It was really a brilliant event. Um, there were very highly interesting uh, keynote speeches and, and, and panels. Uh, it was very complete and, and at the same time uh, very deep. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think we have some time left uh, for uh, questions or comments uh, from the audience. Um, is there anything you would like to ask the panelists. Um, I was wondering uh, to break the ice, um, particularly, uh, it's a question probably uh, predominantly for Helen, what, what, what is the current um, mood or attitude among UK scholars concerning future funding of Euro European Union studies research through European instruments such as the European Research Council or the European Commission? Are you expecting to be treated like third countries like the United States or Switzerland? Uh, or are you hoping for a more special relationship? Or, or are you hoping to continue to be part of the program? What, what, what do you expect in this field? Um, there are others who can respond probably even uh, you know, more so. So it's a collective question. but. Uh, 
On the one hand, we have government discourse through the Lancaster House speech, which kind of mentioned this, this issue and, and the objectives and so on, so everything's fine. But uh, you asked about the mood and attitude, and I don't think that many of us think it is fine. Um, because, and one of the reasons for that is the unintended consequences, which you don't really have to think long about to realise could have happened. So uh, it's not just about whether UK-based scholars will have access to funding, but it's about whether other people will want to work with us and about, the, the French call it effet d'annonce, you know, you sort of get ahead of yourself and uh, all colleagues from the U in the UK, uh, as we talked about earlier, who might want to leave and so on. So it's not just about what's in the Lancaster House speech, as in, yeah, we're going to still get funding and we think science is great and all the rest of it. It's just not that straightforward. So I think the mood is not, well, I mean, in my limited experience, it's not terrifically optimistic. Mm. For which I would be criticised, wouldn't I, as a, you know, as a, as a sort of a project fear kind of proponent. Mm. Thank you. Could I just say sure. on that? Um, there are some, um, some, some attempts to be creative in terms of, in terms of, of challenging that particular problem. And I know me might be able to say more about it, but Queen's has started, Queen's University of Belfast has started looking at this notion of joint professorships, which would be predominantly on the island of Ireland, uh, so that a professor would be attached to two institutions, um, which might be a way of allowing them to, to remain part of, of, of the, the, the European research agenda and have access to the type of funding that uh, you're talking about. But, it's, it's unclear how that would be facilitated or even if, if it would be facilitated by the European Union. But there are, you know, institutions are thinking about it and, and trying, to, trying to confront it in, a, in positive ways. Okay. I would just add that um, the, the way that the EU has supported um, kind of EU study centres has changed the external support for, for outside members, you know, it has changed in the last five years. So it used to be that they would support these centers of excellence and they provided quite a bit of resources for faculty and for research and also for kind of extra kind of co-curricular activities. And they've eliminated that program. And so a lot of the centers in the United States that were very dependent on kind of the, these large center grants are now struggling to kind of figure out what, what was a new model for them in order to maintain that? And so, you know, it's another kind of bad omen. Um, but once you're outside, you know, the, there was a program that actually did allow for these kinds of interdisciplinary centers to thrive, and that now has been scaled back radically. And so, you know, I have no good news. <laughs> Is there any wish from the audience, please? Um, this is, this is unusual to have the three associations together, uh, which raises the obvious question of how you see future cooperation between national uh, European Studies associations. There is a global body, but how do you see bilateral relations developing? Uh, it's not to say you should, uh, although obviously it would be polite to say. <laughs> But Who would like to start? Well, I, well, I just, um, you're, you're referring to USAID World, are you? Or? Yes, yeah. there's that. Um, between yeah, between the two as well. Um, I guess our experience with USAID World, Helen, hasn't been entirely positive in recent years, to put it mildly. Um, but, uh, so I, I mean, 
I haven't necessarily found that 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 user um, in the broadest possible sense in, in terms of bringing together all of the national associations. Um, I think it's underdeveloped in terms of it being a concept and in terms of it being responsive to um, to national associations. Um, but aside from that, in terms of bilaterally, um, I think that actually this might be the spur for more bilateral contact and for um, you know some sort of um, institutionalised relationship perhaps between um, IACs and, and UACs um, in the first instance. Um, because we... Uh, Obviously, with the UK leaving, that that does that does change things. It changes the context, um, but uh, nevertheless, we would see UACs as, as still having a, a strong future and one that we would would like to be associated with. That is the largest um, association of its type in Europe. So um, in the world, in the world, in the world. Um, so um, I, I I think that actually. In the years to come, there might be um, again opportunities for us to think about how we can sustain that relationship. So um, that might be some good news. Yeah, I mean, I think that the so at least um, USA in the United States, it's very focused around the conference setting. You know, as kind of the main deliverable that we think about. What is our membership? What are we doing for our membership? And in that context, UACs and USA in particular have very strong relations, so JCMS is always kind of the signature event of the conference. They have a, a reception and a lecture that they hold there, and there's panels that are reserved for UAC's you know, participants. So I think that there, there's potentially more that could be done. Um, I think it's the question of whether, like, you know, one thing that I'm interested in is about curriculum on EU studies. So there could be collaboration of kind of, you know, other efforts to develop EU studies related curriculums that the organizations are promoting or developing that could be shared across the, you know, then disseminated to the members. What, what could these organizations do to help the members by collaborating um, with each other? But I was also intrigued by the Anglosphere group. So the Canadian organization is also very active. Um, and they, we, we actually have somebody that's on our board that's Canadian. So he's on both bodies. But um, and in that way, the EUSA and I can't remember their acronym. It's not CUSA, but anyway, um, that, you know, it, it'd be interesting to kind of spark up that conversation. What could the collaboration between uh, those four organizations do uh, to help each other? It's not really my place, I guess, as in, in the last year of my mandate, but I think maybe um, as outgoing chair, that would perhaps be to further collaboration, whether it's through the sort of Anglosphere dimension or thematically, as you mentioned, over the curriculum, I, I would really encourage that and, and, and welcome that, particularly as the UK is probably, well, it's leaving the EU, so uh, even in the um, esteemed EXA world, you know, there would be a third party member without a vote. Um, I think that's where they are at the moment. So there are you know, very, uh, what's the word, material, kind of instrumentalist even, reasons, motivations why UACs might now uh, feel more, um, not that we've ever shut the doors, I don't think, but I think there are, that this could be a good, a good time and a good spur for, for greater collaboration. I'd certainly welcome that. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm looking around for uh, further comments or questions. Richard? Within, prior to the global financial crisis and its impact, 
the work on human governance. We, we know a lot about the actor constellations, about how this work, policy making, the outputs, and all of that. But it wasn't until the crisis hit that the big questions were put back on the table as to what sort of entity this is. The, the old question, the nature of the beast, and all that goes with, um, all that goes with policy making and how sustainable the polity is. And I would say there are probably two areas that we need a lot more work, and that is that people who work on the governance side of that multi-level governance system need much more interaction with people who work on the politics. So I would strongly think we need to think much more carefully about that. The multi-level politics interacting with the multi-level uh, governance, and we know much more about one side of that uh, of the equation than the other at the interactions intersections. And the other, I think, is that Brexit has thrown up in a pretty acute way uh, the question of how and what membership means. The EU could handle and did handle a lot of diversity, divergence, and differentiation, and could have bespoke exception agreements with a lot of states, but they were all characterized by being small. And the differentiation issue becomes much different when you're dealing with a large state. Because for the EU, when Norway decided not to join, that was a small state deciding not to join, and there were at the EA. When Switzerland decided not even to join the EA, that's another small state that you had to deal with. But Brexit is systemic, not just for the EU as a constitution, for the UK as a constitutional moment, it is truly systemic for the EU. And that's why I think this whole question around differentiation, degrees of membership, what membership means, the, both the territorial and functional dimensions of differentiation are really significant in this period of European integration. But I, I really, I, I, I think you're absolutely right to say that the big questions are now on the table. And I'm thinking back to you know, Ernie Haas and Lindbergh and Schoenfeld and all of those, you know, the, the nature of the polity. Please. No, at the end. Uh, at the end. Are there any further comments or questions from the audience? I just wanted to briefly uh, respond to something Abe mentioned in his talk. I think there are indeed extremely interesting questions at the interface between uh, global uh, interdependence and European interdependence. <coughs> as far as I know, for instance, there is very little research on the role of the IMF in the European debt crisis. And I think that could be the object of a very interesting uh, political science or even historical projects. Um, if there are no further statements or questions, um, Helen asked me to give her the floor for a final statement. Thanks, yes. Um, I'm, I'm all that's standing between yourselves and myself and lunch. Um, but I think it's probably the only opportunity now for me to formally thank everybody. So I'd like to thank all of you for, for being here, uh, to the paper givers, and in particular to our hosts and organisers here at the EUI, Bridget, and also Dieter Schwenko and his colleagues yesterday at the archives, um, who've been really, really generous. Both, you've all been very, very generous in your, your hosting and so on. Um, and as I said before, this was organised partly with the support as well of the, um, the Jean Monnet funding that, that Emily and I got in 2015, I think. 
So um, that's it really. Yes, thanks everyone for coming. I hope it's been worthwhile. And uh, with lunch, bring <coughs> the closure of uh, the closing of our event. So thank you very much. For more UACs podcasts, visit uaces.org forward slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes.